If someone were to ask you, what is the most important question you could ever ask in your life, what would your answer be? Uh, I'll give you a couple seconds to think, just begin to think. Uh, I know mine when I was younger, and maybe that's uh, like you too, um, my first question, my most important question was, did I pass the test? Right? Because I saw people praying at church, and so I'd go to school and be like, God, I didn't study, but you answer prayers, right? And so then I would just guess all the answers, and I'd ask the teacher, did I pass? And I didn't. I told my pastor, I said, I don't think Jesus answers prayers. And he says, no, he's teaching you in your stupidity. And I said, oh, oh, thank you. Thank you, pastor. I really appreciate that. Uh, or, or another question I would ask was, uh, is it broken? As a young kid, I got injured all the time because I was a daredevil. I wanted to see how far my life could be extended or I don't know. I was just insane. Um, So I would always ask, is it broken? Uh, People at the hospital knew me by my first name. I'd walk in and they would ask me, Marcus, what did you do now? Uh, I remember specifically uh, this one time I grew up with friends who had skateboards. And I don't know who was doing the marketing for helmets back when I was growing up but it wasn't good marketing. No PR for helmets. We didn't wear a helmet, uh, no like shins or you know, any type of elbow pads. I don't even know what they're called. That's how little I wore them. Uh, but you didn't ride a skateboard like this. You went to the tallest hill you could find and you laid down on your stomach, face first to see how fast, you- I see a couple heads nodding. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you see how fast you could go. So I did that and as I was winning the race, I thought uh, I fell off the skateboard. I skinned about half of my face. Uh, I broke every finger in this hand and my wrist and my elbow, and on this hand I broke my wrist, Um, I messed up my knee, and so I get rolled into the emergency room with my mom, who's in here, she can tell you the story is true, and they said, Marcus, what did you do now? And I said, is it broken? And uh, it was, everything was broken, it was awful. Uh, Or or my, probably most recently, the most important question I asked was, will you marry me? Uh, To my wife, and it was on the news, and praise God she said yes. because it was, it was live. Uh, but we have all these questions that we're asking. Um, did the Aztecs win? Yes, they did. Come on, Aztecs, let's go. Right. Uh, we have these questions that we ask. But I think today in our context, there's two questions that we should be asking. It's actually a what question and a how question. Uh, first, what is God doing? Uh, like, like, what in the world is God doing? Maybe you pray like me sometimes. Hey, God, what are you doing? Because it doesn't seem like you're doing much, but God, what are you doing? What in the world are you doing? What are you doing right here, right now, in my heart, in my life, in my family, in my community, at my work? God, what are you doing in your church? God, what are you doing right here? And the second question is just as important. How should I respond? How should I respond to what, whatever God is doing in the world? My prayer is that our response would, would truly be aligned with what God is doing when he is showing us something, as we talked last week, as he reveals himself, that we respond in a way that says, God, I want to show you honor and praise and worship as we lifted our hands and, and we had acoustic worship this morning so we could hear all of our voices and it was so beautiful. God, that's how we want to respond to you. And if we truly believe that God is good, which I pray we do, then we will treasure him above everything else and respond to him accordingly. But how do we respond to him now? I ask within your heart, what is God doing in your family right now? And how should we respond? And how are we responding? And today is Palm Sunday, and it's when we remember this great triumphal entry of Jesus. And as he was coming down the Mount of Olives and he was coming into Jerusalem, people would begin to look at him and they would wave palm fronds. And they would shout, Hosanna, which means save now. Hosanna, you are the Savior, so save us now. 
Uh, you may ask, why, why were they waving palm fronds? It's, it's actually really amazing in, in history. You can actually see 150 years before Jesus walked in his triumphal entry uh, on the donkey. Uh, there was actually uh, Judas Maccabeus, who actually led a revolt to kind of liberate Jerusalem from Rome. And so as Judas Maccabeus was coming in, everyone was waving their palm fronds. But Judas was coming in on a horse. Jesus comes in on a donkey. In the midst of Passover, when the streets are flooded with hundreds and thousands of people as they're heading to Passover to go to the temple and are so excited to, to be reminded of what happened on the eve of the Exodus, as they were passed over in the most precious way. So how would we respond? Well, I'll show you how they responded. They responded at this moment when Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began to shout joyfully and to praise to God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. I love that their response was loud. What is God doing? He's sending his son, Jesus. He's coming in as a king of peace. They would be reminded of what was written in Zechariah 9.9. That says, behold, your king is coming in on a donkey. He's going to bring peace. And so they would say, this is who it is. Finally, God is here in the flesh. Jesus is with us. And they start to shout loud. But then the religious people, they started to complain and they said, hey, Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus, being Jesus, says the most Jesus thing ever. He says, if they're quiet, the rocks will cry out. <laughs> I don't want a rock to cry out for me. I want to respond to whatever God is doing in the world and shout to him. And so that's what they did. They continued. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. Because now we're there finally saying, this truly is the king of the Jews. The one who has come for all of us. It's an amazing, powerful moment. The goodness of God and the greatness of God displayed through Jesus Christ coming in on a donkey. And a donkey, you would think that people come in, when they come in, they should be on a horse as a king, but he came on a donkey as a sign of peace. You read it in the Old Testament, there's other uh, kings who had, who had asked to and required of their donkey. I just want to bring the donkey here. I want to walk around in peace because I own this land. And Jesus is saying, I have a new kingdom. I am the king. And it's going to transform the way you think. They responded with worship. They responded with palm fronds. And then on Friday, they responded with thorns. Because they didn't understand what God was doing. They asked the questions, God, what are you doing and how should I respond? But they didn't wait for God to respond when they asked the second question. God, how should I respond? Because we think that God should do exactly what we want him to do when we want him to do it. And Jesus said, I'm coming in a way that is going to transform everything that you think. They thought that in a week... Jesus was going to come and overthrow Roman rule and that he was going to be the king seated on an earthly throne. And Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. And so after this, they go to have their Passover meal. And in the midst of a meal, Jesus interrupts everything that is happening. And he brings his closest people together to share a conversation with them. This is happening on Palm Sunday. I want to share this with us. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Luke Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's in the New Testament, right before the book of John. We've been in Luke throughout this series, At the Table, where we've been looking at life-changing moments that Jesus had with people at a table or surrounding, surrounded with food. So the Passover is happening right now. And it's, and it's a fascinating moment. As I said, they're celebrating the eve of the Exodus. 
And at the meal, there'd, there'd be four separate parts of the meal happening. At first, there would be a blessing, and they'd have a cup of wine. And there'd be three cups of wine out, so they'd have the first one. And they would have the bitter herbs that reminded them of the bitterness of being under heavy oppression. And then they'd go through another blessing. They'd go through the Passover liturgy and have another glass of wine. You're like, I like Passover. It sounds great. Right? They'd have another glass of wine, go through the Passover lit- liturgy, and begin to sing these Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. They would sing only a portion of them at this moment. Then they'd celebrate the fact that they're having a Passover meal that God has provided. They would sing the same thing. Blessed is the king who has come. Baruch Atah Adonai. They're saying, God, blessed is you, the ruler of the universe. King who has brought everything to us. You are such a powerful God. We bless you and we worship you. Then they would have the unleavened bread. Then they would do another blessing. And they'd sing another Hallel Psalm. And they would end the last Hallel Psalm in Psalm 118. Would say this, and many of us know this one. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. That's how the Passover meal would have ended. And at that point they would have celebrated and danced and Jesus stops them. In the midst of a moment because he says there's something you have to know. So in our Bibles, Luke chapter 22. He starts. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine at the table. Jesus, we just sang all of these amazing songs. Why are you interrupting everything? And the hand of him who's going to betray you, as we read it, we finally realize that Jesus knows what the reader knows. Jesus knows that Judas is at this table. Judas, the one who ultimately would, who at this point had already gone to the temple, had already gone to the high priest, had already gone to the Roman officials and said, I will give over Jesus for a certain sum of money. And they said, how will we know that it's Jesus, this one that was claiming to be the Messiah? How will we know that it's him? And Judas says, it's the one who I kiss. Judas has already prepared the betrayal. And Jesus says, the one who's going to betray me is here at the table. Verse 22, the son of man who will go as it has been decreed, but woe. And that means grief, grief to this person, to that man who betrays him. And then at this moment, they began questioning among themselves which of them it might be that would do this. And we would do that at the table. Jesus says, hey, the person who's going to betray me is in this room. You'd be like, really? I know who it is. I know, I know exactly. Because I've been seeing them. I, they're, uh-huh. They're weird. You know, I, they get angry sometimes. You know, we would have done the same thing. So, so don't let ourselves be better than the disciples in this moment. Verse 24, a dispute rose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. All right, this, this moment, this amazing moment that is happening turns into bickering at the table. There's betrayal at the table. Their response of whatever God is doing is the fact that Jesus is at the table with them and they're saying, yeah, but he's talking about someone that's going to betray them. And it's not me, it's, it's probably that person. It's probably that person starting to point around. But I want us to get us like an image of what this table looked like. Uh, have you seen this? Um, this is an, an artist's perspective of it. This is Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci's perspective. Um, this is not at all what it looked like uh, for a few different reasons. Uh, number one, they wouldn't be sitting at a linear table. 
uh, they, were, they would actually be sitting at uh, a Roman Morsel table that the first century Jews adopted, which is actually in the shape of a U, and I'll show you in a moment. Um, you see the back window, it's daytime. The Passover meal is had at night, so I know I'm nerding out a tiny bit, but it's an artist's perspective. Uh, the host is in the center of the table. No, that's not how it would happen. But there's so many other things. Uh, they're, they're sitting on chairs, not quite exactly what it would be, but they'd be sitting in this Roman-style table that's the shape of a U. It's called a triclinium. It would look more like this. And this is also a painting, but the author is unknown. What I love about this one. You see, Jesus is on the left. He's actually be in that position, uh, closest on the left side, is one of the disciples, then Jesus, and then followed by the rest of the disciples. You see, Jesus is the host of this meal. And they're in this room. Jesus is at the table with them. Jesus, as the host, begins to speak, and they begin to bicker. You see, in a triclinium, what would happen is, as the host, the person to your right was like your most trusted friend. Uh, that, that That would be John. And then over to your left would be the guest of honor. And as they're looking at this table, and kind of it really mattered how close you were to the host in this type of table. And so as Jesus says, the hand of him who is going to betray me is at this table, and they begin to ask, who is the greatest? They start to look at their seating. They go, where am I? We do the same thing. Think of the last wedding that you went to, the last birthday party, the last graduation party. You're like, why are they up in the front? What kind of gift did they get them? They got, them a mic- they got a microwave and they're at the guest of honor table. You know, we, we do the same thing. But, but here's most likely where, where the seating pattern was. See, John, we, we know this from John 13, 23, when John says, uh, I leaned to my left and I was in the bosom of my Lord. This is where John would be. In Judas, we know that we read in the book of Matthew that Judas and G- Jesus shared the same bowl. You can't share the bowl if you're on the other side of the table. And then we know that Peter is across from John because in the book of John 13, 24, we see that John and Peter were directly across from each other. So this is what's happening, but they're going around and judging where everyone else is sitting. Why are you sitting over here? Why are you over there? Why am I not there? And Jesus, should you even be in that seat? Don't we do the same thing? Hey, hey Jesus, who would you say is the greatest person here? In our own minds, we think ourselves. And this is why this dispute begins to happen. Which of them is the greatest? This holy moment turns into a harmful moment. They're focusing more on where they're seated than the Savior that's sitting with them. And we do it often. And Jesus brings them together for this amazing, powerful meal. And says, I want you to know how I see this idea of greatness. What we do, when we ask this question, which of us is the greatest, we're asking who is the most powerful and who is the most influential. Essentially, we're saying, hey God, whose name is great? And God would reply, mine, that's it. We think, I would never ask this question. We have done it time and time again because we have the wrong idea of greatness. Just like the disciples. We rank people in our minds. We all have done it. You may do it on social media. How many likes does this person have? Or how many followers does this person have? You do it on seats like I talked about at a wedding. Uh, you do it on an airplane. When you walk into the airplane and there's first, there's first class, you may be walking past them. You're like, I don't even know why they're there. Can't, why, are they, why are they there? Excuse me, can I get an upgrade? Can I be upgraded to first? You, you do the whole thing. And if you're in first class, <laughs> as the people walk back, you're like, oh, peasants, please. <laughs> 
I'm in first class. You know, it's, we do this. We rank people that are worthy of a certain job. That's their title, their CEO, their executive, their pastor. <laughs> Not them. Me, I could do a better job. We rank people that are worthy of our time. Let someone say, hey, could you meet tomorrow? I'm pretty busy. Let someone that you can get something from meet with you. Hey, can I meet with you tomorrow? Yeah, of course, anytime. I'll move everything on my calendar. We, we even do it with pastors. Uh, because whenever I'm at a meal with people or even my family, they'll say, pastor, can you pray for us? I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I don't have a special number to get to Jesus. Uh, he doesn't like listen to my prayers in, in order. And he's like, he's like, oh, wait, hold on. New break is praying. No, oh, Marcus is praying. Wait, okay, put this one to the top. No, it's not how it goes. All of us can pray. But, but we do it. We think that, that I have some type of elite member status when it comes to the kingdom of God. And, and you know what? They'll listen to Marcus when he prays. No, Jesus listens to you. It's not about the power and status and honor. That's what the world thinks. You have power, you have status, you have honor, then you have greatness. But Jesus, he explains to them what true greatness looks like. We're going to continue reading. Starting in verse 25. Jesus said to them, now, now, he's about to say something that you can only say if you have relational capital. This is why it's not a good idea to go correct someone that knows nothing about you and you know nothing about them. Build the relationship first. Jesus has spent three and a half years with these men, and he says, I'm kind of going to tell you something. I'm going to give some loving correction. This is a way of, of Jesus telling them there's a better way to view life. There is a better way that you should be living. There, there is something that you could focus outside of yourself and focus on me and watch how I can change everything. So he says, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. The, the Gentiles is anyone who is not Jewish. And the way that Jesus is saying it, he's saying, I want you to realize that the way you are acting right now is not of the kingdom of God. You're acting as you are a pagan. You're acting as if there is no God, and so therefore you assume that seat. Is that who you are? And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Uh, benefactors were people that would do nice things just to get something back and something in return. In fact, a, a Jewish historian, Josephus, would actually talk about when, when certain kings walk in, uh, like in a political way, people would say, there goes our benefactor and our savior. Jesus says, that's the way you want to live, for people to know you. And then he corrects them, but you're not to be like that. Church, we're not supposed to be like that. We shouldn't be craving greatness. We shouldn't be craving likes. We shouldn't be craving for people to know who we are. We shouldn't be craving the idea that someone sees us at the store and they're like, hey, I know you. We shouldn't be craving any of that. We should be craving the presence of Jesus to sit with him at a table to allow him to speak anything that he wants to speak to our lives. You're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. And he goes on, for who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I among you am one who serves. Jesus is saying there's greatness in this kingdom of God that is completely different than your idea of greatness in the world. As Pastor Nate said, Jesus oftentimes looks at what we have in the world and turns it upside down. And he said, here's what greatness begins to look like. We have to ask ourselves this question. What is greatness actually supposed to look like? If I want to be Jesus' disciple, if I want to be a disciple of Christ, if I could put myself at that table, in that seating arrangement, God, what do you want me to learn? He says, here's the secret. Do you want to be great? How many of you want to be successful in life? 
Okay, about three of us. That's fine. Everyone else, that's cool. That's okay. Cool. Don't worry about it. Um, for the three of us, uh, we're going to talk today. Um, yeah, no, but if you want to be successful, you want to be great in the kingdom of God, this is what it looks like. Because there's a, two kingdoms happening. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of man. We say the kingdom of Marcus, the kingdom of Nikki, the kingdom of Jeff, whatever that is, or the kingdom of God. There's only one that will fully rule and reign. So we follow that. And what does the kingdom of God look like? If I want to be great in the kingdom of God, I have to let go of my ego. Oh, and it's so tough. First, you have to admit that you have an ego. And then starve it. You may think, I really don't have an ego. Okay, if you've ever said, it's my way or the highway, or I do things the right way, if you want it done right, you need to do it yourself, that's called an ego. Have you ever had difficulty listening to someone that is younger than you tell you how to do something? It's an ego. For the younger ones, have you ever had someone older than you tell you something and you can't listen to them because they're just older and they don't understand what life is like now? They know more about what life is like than we will ever understand until we reach that age. It's an ego. If, if you have someone that has had less experience in your job begin to tell you a certain way to do things, <laughs> what, who are you to tell me? Do you know how long I've been here? I've heard it said that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Why is that? Because our ego is attached to our heart and we just want everything for ourselves. I've heard it said that ego is just a three-letter word, but it destroys a beautiful 12-letter word, relationship. Don't let your ego get in the way. You have to let it go. This is why Jesus would tell them, the kings and the Gentiles lord it over them. You have to let this go. He does, this, he does this beautiful moment where Jesus gives them this loving correction. And here at Newbreak, we learned from Carrie Kaufman, who's one of our board members. She's a coach leader of coaches. And she's amazing at what she does. We were having a talk with her, and she said, permission to call you forward. Because we love calling people out. You love calling people out. I love calling people out. You see what they're doing? You know that's the wrong way to do it. Lefty-loosey, righty-tighty. Come on now. But permission to call you forward? said, I don't want to push you down. I want to lift you up. There's a better way to do this. Jesus tells them permission to call you forward to your greatness, to the direction you fully have to go. And I wonder if, if at this moment, Jesus' Jesus' heart begins to, to feel for them because he's thinking, the book of Acts hasn't been written yet, but they're going to write a book. Luke is going to write a book about you. And what's going to happen in the world? And there's going to be thousands and thousands of people that are going to know the loving God that exists and sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross and rise, rise on the third day. They're going to know that he exists because of you. But if you let your ego get in the way, you're going to be lost. Because your pride will derail you from the purpose that God has for you. And, and think about the peace of an ego. One thing that we often may forget is think of something that you're really, really gifted at. Something that you're just naturally good at. Or maybe you worked hard to get really good at it. And you have people call you and ask you, hey, how do you do that one thing? Can you help me? I just want to be great like you. And that ego starts to get bigger and bigger and your head starts to get bigger and bigger. It's difficult in life because many times when it comes to pride, our giftedness will be our greatest enemy. You're so good at what you do that you think you are now God. 
It's a dangerous place for us to get. If we want to be disciples of Christ, we have to let go of that ego, lay everything down. It's not about how many years you've been doing it. It's not about uh, how many times that that you have been successful in this area. It's not about how many businesses you've sold. It's not about how many people have raised their hands when you've asked them a question. It's not about how many kids you have raised. It's not about any of that. It's the fact that a loving God would look at you and say, I want you to lead people to me, not to yourself. So Jesus would say, if you want to be my disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, deny, take up, and follow. This is the image of, the, of discipleship. Because this is exactly what Jesus would do. He would say, in a moment, I'm going to go to the garden. And I'm going to cry out. And I'm going to say, God, could you take this from me? But not my will, yours be done. He's going to deny it. Then he's literally going to take up a cross and carry it to the hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. He's going to take up that cross and then he's going to open his hands and there's going to be a thief on his left and a thief on his right and everyone before him and he's going to say, it is finished, just follow me. He's going to say, I have no more ego because it's not about me. It's about you meeting my father and my father in heaven has everything you could ever imagine. It is the only answer, it is the only choice, meet him. Pride would say, serve me. Humility says, serve others. He showed it on the cross. You can imagine as his hands are open, with nails in his hands, looking at the people, probably seeing faces that he just saw a few days earlier on Palm Sunday. Barely able to breathe. Thinking, you don't realize how much this costs. And my prayer is today we would not miss how much it cost him. As his arms are open, you don't know how much this costs. It breaks my heart that it had to come to this. But I would do it again every time for you. Because he loves you. And he sees you. And he cares for you. And he said, here's the response. Say yes. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's what it looks like to live as a Christ follower. Which again, is nothing like the world would say. I love reading about leadership and I've read so many different leadership books and I'm always looking for other recommendations so please tell them to me. I've not read one that says deny yourself. Ever. It says you want to be great? Become the greatest leader you possibly can. Sit people down in front of you. Begin to lead them. Some of them may talk about getting some mentors. But none of them say deny yourself take up a cross is something that is going to be difficult for you to carry and then follow Jesus. Jesus is telling them, you want to be great? Follow that. And Jesus models it amazing at first because not only does he walk through, deny, take up, and follow, but he's following his father, but he also models this idea of beautiful service. And that's what we have to do. We have to let go of where you go and adopt a lifestyle of service. You see, at the same meal, Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet. I'm I'm modeling it for you. Then he asks a beautiful question. He says, do you understand what I have just done for you? And I don't think they fully got it. Because we live in a world that says seniority rules. And Jesus says, no, seniority serves along with everyone else. No, I have more influence. Not like you want it to be. So Jesus would tell them, as we already read, that for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is not the one at the table... I am among you as one who serves. Can I tell you, one of the most uh, difficult jobs that I've ever had, and I still think one of the most difficult jobs in our world today, is customer service. 
Why? Because people exist, right? <laughs> customer service would be great if people weren't involved. Uh, I, I remember working customer service. I, I worked at a clothing store, uh, and, and I, I, loved, I loved working there. It was great. But one of the things that always fascinated me is people, to get your attention, they wouldn't say a name. Uh, they wouldn't say, excuse me. They would just start shouting nouns at you. Uh, red shirts. And so I'd say, oh, we're shouting nouns. No problem. Banana peels. That's what I literally would do that. Uh, you think you didn't keep that job long. I kept that job very long. I don't know why I kept doing it, but I couldn't help myself because you were viewed as less than. It's like, hey, excuse me, red shirt. I see it even at the store today. You'll go over to Smart and Final. You'll see, you'll see a Smart and Final worker. Hey, pickles, where are the pickles at? What? I've heard people whistle at workers. Never a new breaker, though. <laughs> we, we, we act like they're less than. I remember working at a restaurant and this restaurant had these amazing sandwiches. And on the side of the sandwiches, you would either get fries or toast. The trick was, the toast and the fries were the same thing. It was buttered garlic. Fries were just cut. If you got the toast, you got the same garlic bread, it just wasn't cut. One person that came in asked me for fries. I gave them toast. Well, they were very upset, extremely upset. Uh, they started shouting and started yelling. They said, you know what I should do? I should get you fired and I should buy this place. I should buy this entire restaurant because I have the money to do it. And here's what Marcus said. I shouldn't have. Here's what I said. I said, if you had as much money as you say you do, you would never have to eat out because you'd have a chef inside of your house. <laughs> shouldn't have done it. Should not have done it. I stopped working there shortly after that. Uh, <laughs> But I just didn't like that, that I was being viewed as, as some, some peasant, someone that's lower because I was serving someone. Jesus said, no, this is completely different. So the world treats people like that, but not in the kingdom of God. Because in the world, we believe the more wealth you have is how great you are. Jesus says, no, surrender everything. And in a world when it comes to greatness, we think greatness entitles us to be served. But in the kingdom, service is the indicator of greatness. If you want to be great in the eyes of God, be willing to be viewed least in the eyes of men. And are we willing to do that? Are we willing to model what Jesus modeled in washing the disciples' feet? Are we willing to model what Jesus modeled as taking up his cross and following his father to the point of death? Are we willing to model that so people can see what greatness actually looks like? Begin to think of the greatness that we pray for our families the greatness we pray for our kids. Do we want them just to be great in the eyes of man? No, my prayerfully, our kids, our next generation, is great in the eyes of God. And I believe they have the power to, to go out and transform the world for it to look a way that looks more and more like heaven every single day. My prayer is that as God looks at you, he says, oh, they're great. Matt? He's great. Manny, he's great. Janine, she's great. If you're watching online, I pray that God looks at you and says, you're great. But what it takes is us to say, I'm, be, I'm gonna be willing to be made low. 
This is why when one of the mothers of the two disciples, uh, the sons of Zebedee, who would be known as the sons of thunder, the mother goes up to Jesus and says, hey, hey, in the kingdom that you're talking about, can, can my son be at the right and the left? Can they be right next to you like you're most trusted and, and the guest of honor? Can that be the case? And Jesus looks, and I'm sure he chuckled a little bit. He said, even the son of man did not come to be served. I am God in flesh. And I didn't come here so people could serve me. It's as if he would look at her in the eyes and say, look at these past three and a half years. Do you know how much I wanted to give up? Do you know how much I wanted people to finally appreciate what is happening? But instead, they're going to kill me. Even the king of the universe came to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's begin to think right now when it comes to this idea, what is God doing in the world and how should I respond? Maybe it's to the point where we say, okay, Lord, maybe I respond by looking more and more like you. Because the truth is, collectively, we are the body of Christ as we read in scripture. Not individually, but collectively. And as you look at our world today, you look at the culture today, I believe the church has to assume the servant seat. In our culture and our world, the church must assume the servant seat. Must be willing to say, whatever is needed. Barefoot Sunday, April 16th, whatever's needed. Maybe it's going to the store and getting some shoes, putting boxes of shoes on the platform. Maybe you have some extra shoes, putting those on the platform. Maybe it's going into your workplace. And instead of being frustrated that your boss, your manager, your coworker is so angry, begin to ask them, how are you doing? And while you're asking that question and they're responding, begin to pray, God, how should I respond? It's not gonna be in a way that causes us to receive more status and more power. It's gonna be in a way that causes us to surrender status and power in humble service and humble sacrifice. So as we go through this week, preparing for Easter Sunday, the most important week in history Maybe one of the questions that we can ask along with what is God doing and how should I respond is who is God calling me to serve? Maybe it is one of your family members. Maybe it is a coworker. And maybe the best way that you can serve them is inviting them to join us on Easter Sunday and saying, you may not know a lot about God or may not know a lot about Jesus or you may not even know a lot about me. But if it weren't for Jesus, I wouldn't be here today. Maybe you could serve Jesus while serving the love of God to someone else and say, just experience it. If there's one day that they're willing to try it, it'll be Easter. Maybe that's how we can serve. Maybe that's how we can respond. So where you're at, if you just close your eyes for a moment. begin to think, God, what are you doing and how should I respond? And here's the tricky part. We say yes to whatever God leads us. So God, right now we come before you asking you, Jesus, to lead us. 
as we ask, what are you doing and how are you moving and how are you working? We know that you're doing something. Your word says that you're even right now interceding, that you're praying for every single one of us right now. And God, as you are doing that and as you're doing all of the other things, as you're bringing healing, as you're bringing hope, as you're bringing restoration, as you're bringing forgiveness to us, as you're doing all of that, how would you want us to respond? And I hear you speaking to us. Respond as I taught you. In committed, humble sacrifice. So God, that's what we do. And we say yes. Lord, we need you. The world tells us so many other things. And God, you say it so plainly. If you want to be great, be like Jesus. So God, teach us how to be more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Give God a hand because I believe God is powerful and amazing to us.